Welcome, Breakers! You have arrived safely at the 32nd episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior, and I'm here with my co-host and accidental clothes horse, John Witten. John, have you earned your tea break? I have not even slightly earned it, because, as will have been clear by my sudden appearance and, like, half a laugh that got caught on the end, I only just pressed record. Oh, so, <laughs> in some very <laughs> fundamental way, especially in, in my role as a podcaster, I've earned squat diddly, Mike. <laughs> um, well, in which case, I can say that I have earned the tea break for both of us because oh, yes. our merch has finally landed. The merch store is active. And it looks beautiful. It looks like an old antique bookstore. It looks like whatever your favourite shop to go into. That's what our merch store looks like. We have badges. We have phone cases with a PSTB logo on them. We have oh. stickers and T-shirts with the Monitor Lizards advert. There are posters of our acoustic sideburns cartoon, mugs and spiral notepads with Errol them listening to you carefully errol is i think the mascot at this stage <laughs> and how about puns are there any puns up there mike there are not yet but i i have it on good authority that puns are in the office oh, i thought we were going to pretend it was in the future but yes <laughs> it's true to say that as we are recording this there are no puns but there there may yet be there are puns in the oven oh god <laughs> <laughs> next year next year we'll have that on a hoodie and of course we have our incomparable beep mask yeah for those of you who need Errol's censure on the move. And all of this stuff, of course, deliverable before whichever solstice festival you're looking forward to this year. Yes, just surf over to www.projectstudioteabreak.com slash merch. This is very exciting. I have never had or been associated with a merch store before. If you don't count that website they took down a couple of years ago where you could buy people's mugshots, <laughs> which, incidentally, they only let you do it in a digital form. And I think the fact that they never sold them printed onto mugs... That was the real crime. That's not what they were tried for. But a mugshot mug would be... Just... I mean, that is totally in our wheelhouse, isn't it? I mean, we could corner that kind of market. <laughs> Speaking of puns uh, and just general wordplay, we have some follow-up for this month. Good to know. I have been overwhelmed by the response to our Q caption competition. Mm -hmm. By which I mean I've been overwhelmed that no one has replied to it and been overwhelmed <laughs> by the task of having to think up some by myself. <laughs> is, it, is it possible, Mike? That occasionally we think of stuff that really amuses us, <laughs> that our listenership, our long-suffering listenership, is just sort of humouring us through this. Yeah. Looking at you, listener. <laughs> okay, but Mike, in lieu of an engaged audience, <laughs> what have you created in your own game? Well, I figured we had to have who the hell does hell think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and given the um, the horse form of the apocalypse line that was just diamond, yes. it inspired me that another option would be a picture of Q's grave and it's saying, the deadful grave. <gasps> no, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> that's the one. Mike, that's excellent. Spoonerisms are the highest form of wit. Mm. I think it has been long known and, and oft acknowledged. Although I did wonder, given the picture of the headstone, whether you could have had a caption, finally available in hardback? <laughs> Grim but wonderful. It's got a real, a real gallows humour to it. Surely, being such a icon in the world of rock music, mm. and these monoliths often being of granite or marble, there must be something there. Yes. Think of this as an unassembled IKEA flat pack of a joke. Oh, I've got it. 
from rock were ye made to rock shall ye return. Yes. There you go. That's also kind of metal. It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. I could see that being a tattoo on a biker's broad and hairy back. Mm. Though I respect anyone's right to not have that visual image in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're just kind of charting its progress because no one would deny that it kind of moved to more mainstream tastes as the years went by. Oh, yeah. Something along the lines of from rock to metal to bubblegum and back. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm feeling a bit sad that Q's gone now. Yeah. It kind of, it, it hits in. We've honoured them in the only way that they, they deserved. <laughs> the, the only way we know how to honour anything. Which is why we're actually surprisingly not in demand as eulogy speakers. Mm. It may shock our listeners to know. Now, I'm afraid I do have uh, some sad tidings. Oh, yeah? Because this month we have no new patrons. N- not a not a single one. Not a single one. And naturally, this has led me to do a good deal of soul searching. Mm. What else could we do? And I think I might have isolated the reason why. Mm-hmm. It's because sound on sound have been muscling in on our territory. Okay, so what you're telling me is that your ex mm. is jealous of your of your new relationship and has started like <laughs> kicking over plant pots outside our house. Exactly. Okay. Hello, SOS. You see, last month. A thread appeared on their forum mm. entitled Ludovico Einaudi question mark question mark question mark. <gasps> oh, sound on sound. And credit where it's due. Grudgingly, it was immensely entertaining. <laughs> oh, sound on sound. You big buff, successful, clever, funny bastards, <laughs> muscling in on our small town mum and pop operation. The big guns roll in. Yeah. Do you have any any particular choice quotes? Of course. I mean, as, I, I was hoping you might. <laughs> I felt that I needed to share it with you. Mm. The thread creator, a user called Piano World Stage, mm. he came straight out of the gate, guns blazing. <laughs> and I quote, Oh, good. So how did this man reach such musical success with such an insipid, mediocre talent? Oh, my. Bland, stupefyingly uninspired, uninventive, shallow, witless, humorless drivel. Oh, it hurts so good. A cheap branded composer who attracts a cheap branded audience. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just the start of the fun. I mean, immediately, we had some uh, pro-Einaudi apologists coming in. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah, there was, he makes beautiful music that many people love. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, okay. Or, people just want to relax, to dream, let them have their dope. (laughs) It's honest. No nonsense comfort food. Nothing wrong with that. There's room for every taste in music. Why do I feel more attacked by the defenders than the original attacker? I, I'm not <laughs> sure any of these are defences I want to be defended by. But of course the anti-Ionaudi crowd were in there as well. Mm. Although they came in it a bit slyly. One guy goes, um, I agree with you. Amongst the panoply of serious modern classical composers, I find Richard Clayderman has far more insight and sophistication <laughs> in his approach. Another guy comes in with, I've always had great faith in the inexplicable success of minor talent. But it has to be said that it hasn't struck in my direction yet, and I'm running out of time. Yeah, this is always the quiet subtext of tearing down people of international fame and success. Yeah. Especially in the comment that my five-year-old could have done that. Or as one guy said, some of his pieces sounded just like someone mucking about on the piano. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if the next composer who's going to fall under the wheel of, of the kind of unfeeling intellectuality of the music world <laughs> after Iron Audi is going to be Niels Fram. Have, have you listened to him at all? The name rings a bell, but I don't think I've heard of him. He mucks about on the piano is what he does. Oh, right, right. <laughs> and kind of more recently on synthesizers and arpeggiators and whatnot. Well, I mean, that'll redeem it. <laughs> <laughs> that has always ensured a composer is taken more seriously. Mm, mm. Just putting a mark in the sand, a flag in the rock, a 
metaphor in the simile that <laughs> before long, Niels, who is very much the darling of the um, modern classical world, at least here in Berlin, mm. is going to fool prey yes. for his playful and carefree piano fiddles. Of course, the thread did inevitably turn ugly. Oh dear, what occurs? <laughs> Piano World stage doubled down. Oh, yeah. And here are some highlights of his subsequent post. Again, this post is not a personal diatribe against an Audi, but... <laughs> <laughs> Who needs a but there? But rather to express an opinion of what is commonly agreed as a ridiculously overrated musical success based on a minimalist who composes simple ambient background music. An Audi's music is apathetic, insipid, flavourless, dull, repetitive and disingenuous. <laughs> All that said, I wish the man well, <laughs> but we shouldn't cultivate mediocrity. I mean, <laughs> he just can't help himself. It's so great. Do you do you honestly believe that you could, for an entire musical career, not just today, but for an entire musical career, mm. avoid all the black notes? <laughs> That's not easy. That's... Or alternatively, just to use all the black notes. Well, th- see, that that is the second type of piece. <laughs> <laughs> there is no denying. And, and at that point, uh, SOS technical editor Hugh Robjohns weighed in and shut him down seriously on grounds of SOS foreign policy what um edict well I quote despite your disingenuous claims that you wish the man well it's blatantly obvious that you don't you despise him and his musical outpourings your posts come across as those of a bitter and malicious man trying to hide his resentment and loathing behind supposed quotations of others oh my word and he went on denigrating in public those you feel unworthy might make you feel better but it doesn't sit within the positive supportive and respectful ethos sound on sound tries to maintain in these forums so you won't be doing it round here okay <laughs> Now, if I'm going to go toe-to-toe with anyone on the internet, it would not be Hugh Robjohns. <laughs> I feel like I was just kind of in a parking lot, having, having just bought myself a smoothie, mm. and I'm about to head home, and then some young toughs yeah. have come along and started shoving me around and shouting. And then Hugh Robjohn has just sort of appeared <laughs> in a bright flash of light, yes. chest held high, with an HRJ written on his spandex top, yep. and chased them away with his clever words. He totally did. Thank you, Hugh. I didn't know you were such a... What what do I and Audi fans call themselves? Idiots? <laughs> <laughs> Hugh! Hugh, Mike's doing it too, Hugh. <laughs> now, there was a rare snippet of good virus-related news this week. Oh, yes. As Dolly Parton confirmed that she'd donated... $1 million to fund vaccine research. St. Dolly, always there. And immediately, some wag posted a YouTube video singing, Vaccine, vaccine, oh. vaccine, vaccine! <laughs> I'm begging of you, please, to save my gran. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I hope Dolly heard that. That's, <laughs> that's one of those rare combinations of 30 seconds of a funny idea and then a good couple hours at least of, of deciding to make that funny idea into a reality. But as joyous as that is, it is not our main <laughs> news story for this month. I dare you to find something more noteworthy than that that occurred. <laughs> now, we all know how hard the live entertainment industry has been hit by the pandemic. Now we do. You know, concerts, theatre shows, TV and film production, they've all been pretty much ground to a halt since March. Mm-hmm. And as such, this presents a unique problem to this year's Tony Awards. Right. And that is that they have 25 award categories, but only 18 eligible shows. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) What a year to be one of the eligible shows. Well, indeed. And as such, this has led to a certain amount of controversy, particularly 
which I know will appeal to you, in the field of musical theatre. Well, I was surprised to hear the Tonys on your lips. <laughs> this is um, not, not an area I think of you as frequenting. Tell me more, tell me more. Well, the first thing is that there are only three best musical nominees. Wow. There's Moulin Rouge, the musical. Mm -hmm. There's Jagged Little Pill, Mm -hmm. which is kind of jukebox Alanis Morissette thingy. And Tina, the Tina Turner musical. Mm -hmm. None of which have original music. Okay, now I'm sad and depressed. So for the first time ever, all five entries in the best original score category are plays. Wait! (laughs) (laughs) Of course, because they have to be. Because there's no musical that even qualifies. Okay, I'm first going to take a moment to mourn the fact that best musical is going to go to a jukebox. Or a kind of a film rehash, which itself was a jukebox. Yeah, that's upsetting and awful. Okay, but now let's review the fact that some unsuspecting playwright (laughs) and some unsuspecting theatre composer... It's going to have a really incongruous Tony Award. Yeah, truly, there is no group of less appreciated, more noble or attractive people Mm. than theatre composers. Well, maybe this is the first truly just year. This is payback. This is payback part one, Mike. Mm. This is payback the preface. I think this is going to mark the great rising of theatre composers Mm. to their rightful place at the right hand of God. And this is going to segue into almost kind of genuine griping, which which I'm going to try and steer clear of. But it is incredible the work that composers for theatre do that that goes completely unnoticed. Mm. And in many ways it's good because it's the same as the work of set dressers, of costume designers, of makeup artists. Yeah. Which is that often if it's done really, really well, no one notices. Yeah, people just say, what a great play. Precisely. And possibly what great acting. Yeah. Without naming names, I have a friend who a few years ago was called to Stratford upon Avon and he is not from the UK and he plays a really gorgeous instrument from his home country Mm. and in this very unusual move the Royal Shakespeare Company and Stratford-upon-Avon commissioned him to write a full score for one of the better known Shakespeare plays right and he performed it all live on stage and the rest of the staging I saw it it was gorgeous but throughout it all there was this person on an instrument most people don't know the name of playing through and I was so excited it was electrifying the music was brilliant Yes. And then, you know, a week later, I, I looked through the reviews. And the reviews were, were so positive. Yeah. And not a single one noticed the musician was there. Oh, God. Wow. That is appalling, actually. Well, it, it's interesting. I, no, I, no, I, I think we can come off the fence on this one. This is not interesting. <laughs> this is a travesty. It was a real shame and strange. Yeah. Honestly, at the time, I was more confused than offended because it was almost through scored and it was new music. And it's not usual for an instrument of any type to be sat on stage. I mean, they talked about the music in Cirque du Soleil that they had a live band on stage. Yes. You know? Yes. And it's not like Cirque Cirque du Soleil is any less distracting than... <laughs> <laughs> I have heard many critiques of Cirque du Soleil, some of them very fair. Not distracting enough has never been one of them. Yeah. <laughs> but then you'd have thought that the company would have wanted to promote this musician. It's an actual USP. Yeah, no, precisely. Okay, I love the Royal Shakespeare Company, mm. and I hope they employ me sometime. <laughs> but their USP is that they do Shakespeare in Stratford. Yes. And it is arguable that the comfort that has afforded them has led to a situation where they haven't needed to seek out any particularly brash innovations in the last 400 years. (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> so just recently, basically. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The whole it's Shakespeare but here thing mm. has been going just fine for them and if it ain't broke. Yeah, yeah. But so this is exciting news that for all that it's a bit of a weird upset, best original score will be going to a straight play of some kind. And that wasn't the only unusual thing. All three of those musicals were nominated in more than 10 categories. Wow. Jagged Little Pill, 15 times, Moulin Rouge, 14, and Tina, 12. (laughs) And to put this in context, the previous record was set in 2016 by Hamilton Mm. of 16. Wow. Okay. Of which it won 11. So... Is Jagged Little Pill really only one nomination less good than Hamilton? Oh, I like <laughs> trying to stay lighthearted. It's genuinely breaking my heart a little bit because I have strong feelings about jukebox musicals. <laughs> but no matter how bad we feel, oh. there are going to be people who feel even worse about these results. Because the third weird thing about this mm. is that those were not the only three eligible musicals. Okay. There was one other. Mm. The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, the only original musical, received not only no Best Musical nomination, but no nomination at all. What? Even though it was the only other eligible musical. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. What a massive burn. It's like, this is a year when Jackie Little Pill deserves 15 nominations. I was going to say. And you don't get a single one. That is a (laughs) searing indictment. Wow. How bad must it have been? Well, I mean, the New York Times Review had some choice lines in it. Oh, yes, please. Musical adaptation of popular fantasy novel comes to Broadway and goes to Hades. (laughs) (laughs) It is both overblown and underproduced and has all the charm of a tension headache. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, surely, couldn't they have done set design or just something? Well, yes. The pity nomination. I think, really, just the act of getting a musical staged is so often worth an award. Yeah. Like you corralled a bunch of actors together. Kind of a participation medal of some type. (laughs) Honestly, above Jagged Little Pill, yes. But it gets worse. Oh, no. I don't think it does. I don't think it can. This year's Best Actor in a Musical Award. Because Tina Turner and Jagged Little Pill did not have male leads. Yeah. Only Moulin Rouge and Percy Jackson were allowed to be in the Best Actor category. Mm Mm-hmm. And they only nominated the guy from Moulin Rouge. <laughs> so he's, oh for, the, for the first time in history, the best actor in a musical category only has one nominee. Mate, this is such a train wreck. <laughs> so even though there was only one nominee in the category, they still couldn't bring themselves to give Chris McCarroll, poor thing, the lead singer of the Percy Jackson, to give him a nod. Just a nomination. He doesn't have to win it. He just, <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, this made me think that... Have you ever seen Brewster's Millions? No, I haven't. Basically, the conceit is that Richard Pryor is a total wastrel mm. who has a millionaire great-uncle or something who deeds him all his money and his will, mm. but only on the condition that he can spend a million dollars within a small period of time. Oh, right. And he keeps failing at doing it. You know, everything he tries to fail at, he ends up being a success <laughs> at and making even more money. Oh, that's amazing. And the way he finds finally does it is by launching a political campaign mm-hmm. where he asks people to vote for none of the above. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and I wonder whether, you know, I think Chris McCarroll should be now launching a none of the above campaign. Uh, yeah. Because if Aaron Tveit, the lead actor of Moulin Rouge, doesn't get 60% of the votes, <gasps> he won't get the award. Oh, that's quite something. <laughs> 
I think. Wouldn't you be lobbying hard? I mean, I would be. God, yes. The old grudge lobbying. I just Googled <laughs> Jagged Little Pill reviews, and apparently it's quite good. Great. Yes. But Alanis Morissette and Tina Turner and the film Moulin Rouge, they don't need recognition. Not really, no. They're all quite established. And the fact that Percy Jackson is obviously this huge international young adult book success. But the music was original. They actually wrote a musical. And most of the actors are unknown actors. Like first time debut actors. So couldn't they have found one that did well given the circumstances? Just to, like a dusty one that had fallen down the back of the sofa. Just exactly. <laughs> any old nomination. Okay, I'm going to make a suggestion. Yeah. Because I need to know if our sense of outrage is justifiable. I'm going to suggest that we take like... Three minutes out, I'll try and find a YouTube of some bit of this staging. There must be a trailer out there. There must be some bootlegged something from Percy Jackson. Well, the thing is, the reason this exists is because there was an hour-long, short Percy Jackson musical that was much more intimate off-Broadway that got really good reviews. Right. Then they ported it to Broadway, added an hour extra stuff to it, and didn't really do the work to translate it properly. And it bombed. Now, I know you're relatively new to the the musical theatre space. Would you be surprised if I told you that's not the first time I've heard that story? (laughs) That's not the first time anyone's heard that story. Yeah. That story of a really lovely, intimate gem of an off-Broadway show uh, taking on some money and sinking. Yes. Yeah, old as time. Okay, so that there was a gem of something really good and favourable in there, but this new version doesn't even warrant a nomination. It encased it in crap like a Scotch egg. Yes, precisely. <laughs> At which point, even if the egg's still good, you cannot call the overall eating experience a positive one. <laughs> Have you got five minutes to just listen to one of these tracks? Yeah, yeah, why not? Okay, I'm pausing recording. Okay, so Mike and I have just had a quick listen to uh, A Good Kid, uh, one of the songs from the musical, and I think I just actually misunderstood the basic premise because I think from the sound of that song, it just may be that, that Percy Jackson, Lightning Thief, has less original music in it than the Tina Turner musical. <laughs> wow, I have never heard anything that sounds more like someone typed teen rock into a free music library and just sort of tried to vamp over the top of it. I mean, do you think this is just a failure of AI then, basically? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Wow. It even, as Mike pointed out, even has a... I don't even want to call it anthemic. This sort of stonky, repetitive chorus which at the end gets a reprise, but it's oh, but it's over reflective piano rather than distorted <laughs> guitars. And you go, oh, maybe he's not all brash presentation. Maybe there's a sensitive soul underneath. Wow. The staging looks like great fun, but yeah, I can kind of see that not making any big musical waves. But it's the question just how bad is bad? I mean, <laughs> I thought it was passable, a passable bit of entertainment if you don't think about it too hard. I mean, could not... The Tina Turner musical have spared at least one nomination for <laughs> Percy Jackson. For staging, for set design, I think it really could have done. Honestly, I think you should just put Hamilton back in the running. <laughs> Everyone still loves it. <laughs> Why don't we just give it another round? A victory lap, if you will. Now, all this talk of the Tony Awards, it gave me an idea. Mm. Christmas is coming up. And what better time can there be to take some time off, yep. listen to a bit of music, and above all, yep. do a quiz. Oh. Oh, goody gumdrops. Okay. (laughs) So I think it's time for another of our fabled PSTB head-to-head contests. I'm so ready. In a few days' time, 
The Grammy Award nominations are due. (sighs) (laughs) But the awards themselves aren't announced until the end of January. Oh, word, my word. Which means that we have perfect timing to uh, have a go at predicting the winners for ourselves in the next episode. (laughs) And then in the following episode, seeing how badly we've mugged it up. (laughs) Licking our wounds as best we can. (laughs) So, here's what I suggest. Yes. I think we should each have a go at predicting all four of the main category winners. So that's Record of the Year, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist. Oh, my word. The big four. And of course, because we are a Project Studio podcast, I feel we should also do the non-classical Best Engineered Album and Producer of the Year. Okay. But also, I think because we are proudly niche in our podcasting... Yes, indeed. I think it would be fitting if we also both selected a couple of categories, niche categories, (laughs) just for the hell of it. (laughs) So, I mean, you've not had a chance to look through the listing yet, but I was going to nominate... Best Arrangement, Brackets, Instrumental or Acapella. And Best Bluegrass Album. (laughs) Just because I fancy listening to a bunch of bluegrass. I don't even slightly blame you. (laughs) I think this is a brilliant idea. And I'm just going to make the one rule for myself. Okay. That I can't just do the Neon Skyline 15 times. (laughs) Well, the problem is you've got to choose from the nominees. Yeah, no, okay, good. So they've kind of got that rule for me already. Unless Neon Skyline's been nominated. It might be. It might be. Who knows? In a few days' time you find out. It's absurdly underappreciated. I've spent more time than I care to admit reading reviews and going, what what do you mean competent? (laughs) Um, So all told, you know, with the four big ones, the two technicals, and each of us with two niche ones, mm -hmm. that should give us a nice round 10 categories in total. So it's 10 potential points to play for. This is a brilliant game that you've designed. Now, I know what you're thinking, John. You're thinking... Where's the excitement? (laughs) Where's the jeopardy? Where's that adrenaline rush? Oh oh dear. And I feel that it behooves us to have some kind of a forfeit for the loser. Something on the line. That's not (laughs) a bad idea, mate. Just to, you know, make sure it counts. (sighs) Yes. Playing for keeps. Okay. One suggestion I thought was that the loser has to do a TikTok dance video for record of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Or another one I thought, they have to record themselves singing the song of the year while eating a slice of toast. <laughs> now, Mike, I hope you have your oven mitts ready. Oh, because this... no, we don't. Do you not? That's actually on my wife's Christmas list. Because <laughs> our existing ones have worn out. Oh no, I'm underprepared. I could use some new oven mitts as well, actually. I've just been using tea towels wrapped around my hands. Well, I mean, that's proper old school, that is. Right? Makes me feel like Rocky out of the Rocky films. But they, <laughs> they do sometimes miss a spot. And it's always a spot that the hot pan in question doesn't miss. They're incredibly consistent like that, pans, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yes, they are. I have three fairly considerable burns on my arm from cooking. And what's sort is they're all in exactly the same place. Oh, wow. I can even see them over the Skype video. Okay, so they are that intense. I mean, that's not a burn. That's a brand. It, it is. That's showing that you're part of their herd. <laughs> they own you, basically. Owned by the kitchen. I can get on board with that. But at this moment in time, no, we need oven gloves because this face palm is fresh out the oven. Okay, right. It's hot and steaming and hurts to touch. I can already smell the, the aroma wafting through the face palm kitchen. So theatre is a difficult um, industry to work in right now because there isn't any. And how, yeah. 
But a few weeks ago, I was fortunate enough to be directing a wonderful piece of experimental immersive theatre. This, of course, is the bright side that all theatre is now experimental theatre because none of the standard stuff works. (laughs) Literally, conventional theatre has been made illegal. It's like a bad play. Yes. And so now everything's immersive, experimental, weird. Mm. And this one in question, this was a particularly weird setup. So basically you, the audience member, would arrive at the beginning and you'd be separated from all your known and loved ones and you'd be brought as an audience of one into this forest, Mm. which had been decked out to look trippy and and Midsummer Night's Dreamy, beautiful stage design, which I had nothing to do with. Okay. And you'd be brought into this beautiful, strange, trippy forest Mm. and introduced to unusual characters within. So basically, we had nine different performance artists who we'd selected, and they each gave a three-minute performance to each audience of one. And then a chirpy fairy guide would ferry you to the next point on your journey, and you would experience something else. So this was all, like, outdoors? Yes, and it did rain, which it might have done. So that was... I was about to say, but there's a bullet avoided already. <laughs> yes! We had some half-hearted tarps ready to string up, but um, right. it wouldn't have been the same. The fairy tarp, it, just, it doesn't have the same ring, does it? Not quite the same vibe. <laughs> but it was great fun. We kind of lit the path and, and it was all, all mysterious. And it was all about mushrooms and the ridiculousness of mushrooms. As you do. As one does. So there were... Well, it's because you're such a fun guy. Oh! <laughs> I can't believe I didn't My. See Liam that coming? No, that was a very spore pun. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'll consider myself pwned. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it builds to this meeting with some grand mushroom witch played by a horrifying Buto dancer who's lovely in real life and horrifying in performance. Mm. So this was the plan. And it was great. And it was, as so many experimental things are, it was done on a shoestring and a prayer and the goodwill of a lot of wonderful people. Mm. So as the director, when I arrived on the day, it was vital to me that it had absolutely all my attention. So from the moment I arrived, I turned my phone off and I left it in my bag, which seemed at the time like a great (laughs) idea. I see the seed of a facepalm has been sown. (laughs) A spore has landed. (laughs) And I set about rehearsing the different acts and making sure that we had some sort of cohesive journey for people to go on. Yeah. It was all going great, Mike. What? Possibly. Could have gone wrong. Well, as I said, there are these stations with different performance artists, but there's also this charming, charismatic fairy guide who takes you in between each of these things and and who you have a relationship with as an audience member. Yes. I was so glad the actor we'd managed to get for that because you need to both be charming and good at improvising. You also need to have pretty decent cardio because there's only one of these and there are nine audience members at any given time. It's like that thing with the fox, the goat and the cabbage, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It exactly is. So he would move station nine to station ten, then run back to eight and move eight to nine, then move back to seven and move seven to eight. Oh, yeah. And throughout this, have to keep a kind of light and sprightly energy. Actually still be able to speak. (laughs) Yes, there you go. It was, I made it clear that just panting, grabbing someone by the shoulder and pointing them in the direction they needed to go was both COVID unsafe and not really in the spirit of the thing. So we'd got a just charming performer for this. And they'd been very responsible as well in that they texted me first thing that morning to let me know that someone they'd been in close contact with was a suspected COVID carrier. So obviously they couldn't come. (gasps) And I'd been good and responsible by making sure my phone was turned off during rehearsals. So (laughs) everyone did everything right, kind of. Yes. 
so many pieces seem to have been in the right place. They were just parts of different puzzles. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I discovered this fact. I turned on my phone, wondering where this guy was up to about half an hour before we started performance. Oh, God. Everything was in full prep mode. <laughs> I can only imagine the depths to which your heart sank at that moment. Yes. The crushing realisation. I, I thought, well, we'll just do it without nope. Nope, that would just be nothing. <laughs> there, there has to be this guide. So I'm getting this impression of John rapidly strapping on a pair of fairy wings and a tutu, <laughs> stepping into the breach okay. nobly. First of all, let me make it clear two things. First, that these are cool, sexy urban fairies. Right. This isn't, these aren't your grandma's fairies. These aren't porcelain <laughs> fairies. These are these are bang up to date. There you go. These are hipster fairies. Fairies with a Z on the end. Thank you, and probably somewhere in the middle as well. Mm. But also, well, this was my first thought. I thought, God, I'm going to have to do this. This is going to be a letdown. But then I realised that no, because when directing immersive theatre, half of the job is on the night. I need to be around. I need to be responsive. Yeah. And I can't be doing this job. Yeah. So I nervously approached our extremely long-suffering makeup artist oh who's also a brilliant performer wow and when i approached them i want to make this clear when i approached them well you see the linchpin of our entire production has fallen over i don't suppose you could just step into the breach could you it'd be like oh we've lost hamlet just 15 minutes before i look, you know roughly how it goes <laughs> it's kind of it's to be or not to be and you just kind of extemporize from there there's going to be a lot of emphasis later on in this story on the bravery and ingenuity of this makeup artist Artist. But I want to take a minute to just reflect and appreciate my own bravery. Now, mm. anyone who's ever worked in theatre knows that a makeup professional half an hour before a show starts <laughs> is not someone to be trifled with. That's the lion's den, isn't it? Just let them do their work. When I approached, there were four people waiting in line. They had one person in the chair already. There was a lot of performers and not enough time. And so when I sidled up and said, can I have a word? Oh. I think that's probably the most courageous thing anyone's ever done. <laughs> Bar none. So, as they were like, I don't know, sponging and painting and however else this works, I was explaining the situation. And bless their hearts, they were. No, wait, wait a moment, wait a moment. I think I need to get a bit more detail. Talk me through how this conversation started. I, I, I think I genuinely may have started it with, you know, Mark? <laughs> I'm trying to keep the kind of casual vibe alive. I said, uh, he was in contact with someone who might have come. He said, oh, oh, no, that's rubbish. But in a voice that clearly said, oh, that's rubbish, that that's your problem. <laughs> You know, I have plenty to be getting on with. So what did you do, John? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Really hope that works out for you, thoughts and prayers. At which point I realised I was going to have to be slightly more blunt. And I put on my better directory voice. <laughs> and I said, I would like you to play the guide, please. Oh, is that the directory voice? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's just me with a few less sorries. It's more an attitude than a voice. A flimsy edifice of confidence is how I would describe my director voice. Right. We're just waiting for a slightest gust of wind to blow me into the dust. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. I think you don't get to work in theatre production without being able to roll with a fair few punches. God, yeah. And the literal ply was... Well, the show must go on. There we go. The reply was, okay, what do I need to do? And so having that, okay, I said, okay, just be at the starting point at 
like five minutes before showtime and, you know, get into costume. Yeah, of course. At that point, I sprinted to our costume master and I said, I need... Well, I mean, I know the makeup artist is five sizes smaller, but let's just put a belt on it. <laughs> well, look, here at least we had some mercy from the universe in that all the costumes were very drapey. Ah, right. Were very, like, start with a big bolt of fabric and have some fun. Yes. Which also meant that the costume master was very, very busy because they were basically creating costumes on people. Yes. And I said, you know, I need you to do me. I need you to do our makeup artist as well. We both need to be ready pre-show. Oh, so did you basically then divide the duties up between you and the makeup artist then? Again, wouldn't have been possible because I had to be circling and putting out fires as we went. Oh, so wow. what happened in the end was we... Oh, my... It's fun to look back on, but it was horrifying in the moment. I knew the guide's track. His lines is more or less because, you know, we devised it together. Yeah. Makeup artist didn't know any of it. So the first two or three rounds... We did sort of a fairy double act. And I said, the first time, you just back me up. The second time, we'll do it together. The third time, I'll back you up. And then the fourth time, I'm gone. I've got to start doing my other jobs. Wow. And needless to say, there were plenty of drinks after the show generally, but this makeup artist got its very own bottle of wine from me. (laughs) And, And a sort of blank check of gratitude (laughs) you know there are those situations where you know that someone has literally saved your ass yes in the most uncontroversial way there's no way you wouldn't have absolutely crashed and burned had they not interposed on your behalf there you go yeah we would have et gravel if it weren't for their (laughs) stepping in so, Phoenix, on the off chance you ever listen to this, you are my hero. The fairy in shining armour, if such a thing can possibly <laughs> exist. Now, John, have you heard of a singer called Dermot Kennedy? Dermot Kennedy, the name certainly rings a bell, yeah. He's uh, He had a big hit earlier this year with a song called Outnumbered. Oh, yes, I reviewed the lyrics of that, in fact, which people can find up on the Mixed Review website. There you go, absolutely. Now, what really struck me with this song was his instantly recognisable Irish pronunciation of the letter R. You know, words like heart and hurt. Mm, mm -hmm. And it seemed as if the lyric had actually been written to capitalise on this. (laughs) I mean, bear with me, right? Verse one, you had scars, start, part, art, and apart. Verse two had depart, dark, R, and car. (laughs) And all the pre-choruses had stars in them. Someone's noticed how adorable this is. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, I can't think of another singer in recent memory, who has had that. And it felt to me like a hook. Mm. But I thought to myself, no, maybe I'm just being too cynical. Until I heard uh, his latest single, Giants. (laughs) (laughs) Which had, Hurt, dirt, worth, start, park, heart, darling, (laughs) word, five times. Oh, my word. And yours, eight times. (laughs) See, Mike, okay, so now it's clear to me that this is on purpose. But the thing that I'm so deeply, deeply curious about is whether anyone's told Dermot. (laughs) (laughs) Do we really have to have the lyrics saying a part again? (laughs) Isn't that a bit hacky? No, no, it it got down really well done. (laughs) No, people love it when you do your generally talented singing. Yeah. Yeah, no, he can never know that he's just being used as an R machine. (laughs) It would would ruin him. An R factory. Yeah, churning out out these adorable (laughs) Irish R's. So, this sent me thinking, right? My question for you this month is, what other singers can you think of who are that instantly recognisable via a single letter? I take your question and raise you one more thing about Irish R's. 
Okay. Oh, go on then. <laughs> or Celtic R's. We're going to move them to Scottish islands. Okay, so say for me, space ghetto. Uh, space ghetto. Lovely. Uh, like a ghetto that's in space. Now, try it for me in a, in a really broad American accent. Uh, <laughs> are you testing me here? <laughs> I am. Uh, space ghetto. Now do it again, but be aware that you sound exactly like a Scottish Islander saying Spice Girl. <laughs> Space Girl. That is very, very good. Isn't that insane? That's so close. <laughs> That's one of my favourite facts about the world. <laughs> I don't care that cheaters can run fast or that, I don't know, sea anemones live for a thousand years. It's just that that's true. <laughs> That makes me so happy. But now that I've completely jumped the rails on this question, yes, singers that are identifiable by one consonant, one syllable alone. I mean, the, the bottom line is that it's a good thing as a singer to have a very recognisable brand. Absolutely. I mean, that's gold dust as far as pop music is concerned. Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, my first thought was a specific vowel. Okay. From a specific song, but I think it's so iconic that it has made a brand all of itself. And it is, of course, the long I on I Will Always Love You by Ms. Whitney Houston. Oh, wow, okay. The I-I-I-I-I. <laughs> but honestly, before we even get to the E-I-E-I-O bit, like, <laughs> if anyone just came up to me and was like, who am I doing? Ah! You're right, it's that instant brand recognition. Yes, exactly. You don't have to have the backing track. It's just the breath, the intensity, the pitch register. Although, okay, now here's the thing. I think it's gendered. Oh. And this is this is a problem with diphthongs. Right. Because I is a diphthong. It's a combination of the vowels R and E. Yeah. Rather than a single sound. So what Miss Houston is actually singing is R, and she just tacks the E on right at the end. Yes. And now, what this means is that if a guy sings it, I just realised when I did it then, it just sounds like the beginning of Lion King. <laughs> these are the same song. It turns out these are the two identical same songs. It's just that if a woman does it, it's I Will Always Love You. And if a man does it, it's the circle of life. Yeah. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was one of the first ones I thought of. Oh, yeah. But with someone completely different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could say, and all the roads we have to walk are winding. <laughs> It can only be one singer yeah. that does an eye or shine in that way. <laughs> and oh, hell, they played that one to the hilt. It's like every other song had that. That was clearly uh, something that was noticed and capitalised upon. That was a gold rush of vowel mining. Definitely. So then mine took me to a much gentler place. I thought of Nora Jones. Oh, okay. And I find it hard to codify this, despite having done lots of singing and thought a lot about how sounds are made. But it's almost as if she duck faces every single vowel. There is no one there to cry <laughs> your tears. I could love you for a million years. <laughs> You've ruined her for me now. <laughs> I'm not hey, I, I love her. I love what she does. Come away with me. <laughs> Yes, I think she just puts on, I don't know, a sawn-off kazoo before singing anything. <laughs> it's a bit like James Arthur. Oh, yeah. I always think he sounds like he's desperately trying to sing without revealing his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> he always has that slightly buttoned-up kind of thing. Uh, I, I'm trying to sing, but I'm, I'm so emotionally retentive, I can't open my mouth properly. Yep, I think, okay, I can identify both those singers from those sounds. I don't think it has to be just vowels, though. I mean, I think of it also with consonants. I mean, again, one of the first ones that came to mind for me was the Kate Bush R, the kind of fricative R. Ooh. Where she goes, you're running up that road, <laughs> you're running up that hill. Yes, I can hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, and this is one that I just don't know quite how he does it. 
is Nat King Cole. Oh, yeah. And his L. So if you imagine, like, unforgettable. <laughs> How does he do it? He manages to hold an L for, like, three seconds. It's a consonant, damn it. He finishes something or starts something. <laughs> no, that's very, very true. Oh, I like that we're in uh, vintage territory now. I, I wonder if there's a Bing Crosby or a Frank Sinatra sound. It feels like there should be, doesn't it? It does. I mean, something besides their flagrant ignoring of the meter of the song and <laughs> casual asides to the bass player that just make their voices so immediately recognisable. He always sounds as if one eyebrow is higher than the other, Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> A sardonic singing style. You're never quite taking it seriously. <laughs> I can't believe I'm singing about Christmas kind of thing. I'm with you there. And getting away with it every year. <laughs> okay, let, let me make us contemporary and relevant again. Let's talk about Adele, mm. because she has a distinctive voice. She does. There's no denying it. Like, that's the sound that her albums are sold on. It's not the instrumentation. Mm. I would argue it's not even as much the songwriting, though they're great songs. Mm. It is the sound of her voice. It is that iconic belt. Definitely. That she has and also wears. <laughs> Oh, that was a bad joke. So, I think this is actually another example of an eye vowel. Okay. Because when she sets fire to the rain, or when she never minds, I'll find... Oh, right, it, It's yes. another fast close onto the E at the end of it. Yeah, I can get that. Is there something a bit duck-facey about the O's as well? I'm just thinking like... <laughs> Hello. Much in the same way that many Harry Potter fans consider J.K. Rowling's after-the-fact tweets about the characters to be non-canon, mm. I consider Hello to not really be an Adele song. I hate it. Oh, now that's interesting. Why do you hate it? I hate it for a different reason, probably. I think it's just bad songwriting. Okay. Like, it's the trappings and the shape of an anthemic number, but musically it doesn't do anything... Lyrically, it doesn't do anything that someone like you hasn't already done better. And yeah, well, that was her as well. <laughs> For a moment there, I thought you were actually saying me specifically. <laughs> I thought, well, that's very flattering of you, John. But no. <laughs> Adele isn't breaking any ground that Mike Senior hasn't already mastered. No, it's wet and it's weak and it's just a sorry, sad cash-in. Yeah, and also... I think it suffers from having the same title as a better song. Oh, okay. I can, yeah. <laughs> if she thought she was going to knock Lionel Richie out the water with that weak piano ballad. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very true. But for me, it is one of the worst ever vocal pitch correction crimes ever perpetrated. Oh, really? If you listen, I think it's the second verse of that. You can clearly hear pitch correction warbling and all sorts of artifacts going on. And you think, oh dear, for heaven's sakes... One of the great singers of our generation. Mm. Could you not have done a better job with the pitch correction? And it clearly destroys some of the vocal expression with the way they tuned it. Oh, makes me livid every time I think about it. Should have been a sackable offence. Well, I mean, two things on that. One, if a producer was going to ruin any Adele song, I'm glad at least it was that one. <laughs> Second of all, I'm not sure if we can call Adele our generation, Mike. Look, I want to. I want to just as much as you. But Let's think aspirationally. <laughs> You're as young as you feel. Sure. You're as young as the generation you decide you're part of. There we go. I have the average life competence of most 14-year-olds out there, so I'll go with <laughs> I'll go with that. So were there any other examples that came to mind? Oh, I have a question. Because obviously Leonard Cohen got there with that gravel. Or Tom Waits. Pretty much the same person. <laughs> Johnny Cash and his latest stuff. I'm convinced that was just one guy wearing three different, but now that I think about it, pretty damn similar hats. 
Uh, <laughs> those are three remarkably similar artists, are they? That, Never you, seen in the same place at the same time. Hmm. Actually, what seems stranger to me now is that there were three of them. Like, it would make more <laughs> sense if they were one person. If their canon was just combined. Yeah, that three people could occupy that same niche at the same time mm. is quite something. Well, it's like hummingbirds and hummingbird moths. Tell me, tell me more. Bear with me. A hummingbird moth is an insect, mm. and a hummingbird is a bird, and they've both simultaneously evolutionarily developed to fill the same ecological niche. Oh, interesting. If you see hummingbird moths flying around, you can easily mistake them for hummingbirds. He said, having mistaken them for hummingbirds. <laughs> <laughs> but they're fascinating. Where are these endemic to? Where do they live? Oh, we have hummingbird moths in our garden in summers. Wait, for real? Yep. They're beautiful little things. I love them. Oh, that's really gorgeous. And, I mean, I'm assuming you don't have hummingbirds. No, I thought we might when I first saw the hummingbird moths until I did some research and found out about hummingbird moths. But they fly just like a hummingbird. I would love to see that. That sounds amazing. No, I think there's a kind of an additional bonus category here. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's also an extra category of singers who are instantly recognisable by the phonemes that they add that aren't there in the lyrics. Very interesting. I think probably the king of all of these would have to be the Elvis schwa. Do you know what a schwa is? Is it the dead vowel, the blank vowel, the uh sound that the English are so fond of? Exactly. But the Elvis schwa is like, I just wanna be your teddy bear. (laughs) Or, I don't be cruel. Yes. And if you want to do an Elvis impression, the quickest way to do it is just stick a schwa in front of anything. A hello kind of thing. It's so interesting because if he just brightened that schwa a little bit to an ah, he would sound so Italian. <laughs> Don't be a cruel to ah, to that to true. Although, oh, wait a minute, Elvis is actually Italian-American. I Oh, linguists, get at me. Is there some sort of link that the Italian A prefix came to the US, got dulled to a schwa? Oh, wow. How amazing would that be? It would be very cool. And the other one I think of, just to annoy you, oh yeah, is Michael Ball. I'm listening, though less than I was before. <laughs> the Michael Ball H. An example, if you please. Okay. <clears throat> you ready for this? Not in the slightest. Oh, my friends, my friends, don't ask me what your sacrifice <laughs> is for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just another reason to hate him. <laughs> Now, given that this is our December episode, this is the only episode that you might be listening to on Christmas, which means that it's the only episode we're allowed to talk about Christmassy things on. Mm. So today, we don't actually have a toast foley. In a first for the podcast, we do have a gingerbread foley that we're going to spread, oh gosh, I'm not sure, brandy butter on? It could be brandy butter, I suppose. It might be scraping gently on the side of a cup of mulled wine. Maybe you're scraping icing onto it. But that's not how you ice gingerbread. You pipe it. Def- I mean, That's true. <sighs> Listeners, mm. we're going to have to leave you to kind of figure out this exactly. But look, it's gingerbread and you're scraping something onto it. I hear that spicy crunch to it. Right, there you go. It, it's definitely spice. Mm. Okay, that is our gingerbread foley of the month. Now, have you got any idea, besides, obviously, wasn't that just gingerbread? Well, of course. Do you have any other ideas as to what might have been making that noise? Well, I mean, if it weren't gingerbread. Yes. <laughs> were it not to have been gingerbread? I don't know. I wonder whether it had a slightly plasticky element to it. Never been more offended in my entire life, but, but okay. Oh, there's something being rolled between the palms there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I don't know. It is, of course... 
a handful of jingle bells. Oh, wow, that's brilliant. I'll be honest, I started with the jingle bells and then I decided I had to write the way. <laughs> work backwards. And work backwards. Well, it's very fitting. I'm feeling Christmassier. It's just... It's the most amazingly Christmassy sound in the world and I'm going to try to resist doing it for the rest of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything finer after a big Christmas dinner, mm. after you've sworn you'll never eat again, than that like five o'clock tea time when you decide that maybe you could have a slice of toast with maybe a smattering of jam. And so what kind of jam would you suggest then, John? Well, I'm going to continue this theme of things you're only allowed to talk about in December and I'm going to go to Christmas music. Oh, right. I'd like to just give us both, but mostly me, but also you, but mostly me, a chance (laughs) to talk about our favourite Christmas music. And I'm not talking about pop and rock Christmas songs. I'm talking about classical and I'm talking about church and I genuinely think it's a travesty because there is so much incredible music, especially in the choral canon, which only gets It's like a month of breathing space every year. It's unforgivable Mm. and definitely a big serious problem, not just something that a classical muso likes whinging about. (laughs) Um, I'm going to open with a British composer here and I'm going to talk about Bethlehem Down by Peter Warlock. Oh, right. Wow. Is this a song you are familiar with? Is it church music? It is. Wow, I'm amazed I've never sung it then because I thought I'd sung practically everything in the Christmas church canon. (laughs) Bethlehem Down is just one of the most gorgeous bits of choral music. I'll tell you what, I'll go have a listen to it right now. Hold that thought, listeners. Okay, I've listened to it and I can confirm that I'd never heard it before, but it is totally in a mould, a very clear mould of a type of Christmas choral music that I is one of my favourite types. Mm. It's the impression of... You know, flickering candlelight and weathered old dark wood pews. Even having heard it before, one knows where it belongs. The other thing about it to me is that, and it's characteristic of all the Christmas music I think that I like most, is that it has that sense of having roots before tonality. Hmm. There's this modal, medieval flavour in it. I mean, it clearly it's more modern music, but it's looking back. And the, the reason I went, I quickly nipped out while I was listening to it was to get, and if you don't recognise this book, I might have to shoot you. In fact, there's two of them. Oh, is one of them green and one of them blue? <laughs> one of them's green and one of them's orange in my editions, I don't know. But these are basically the Bibles of English choral Christmas music. Uh, two books called Carols for Choirs. Mm. I mean, I have numbers one and two. Yeah. Uh, David Wilcox, the famous choir director, did a lot of arrangements for it. But some of them are, are very much part of the Christmas tradition now. But the one I was thinking for that this really reminded me of was the Coventry Carol, which is one of my absolute favourites. The Coventry Carol was the next one I was going to speak on. So, yes. It's lovely. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad, even if none of our audience does, that we can get excited about these songs. Because they are, oh, they're so special. Yes. Just on Bethlehem Down, before we get to Coventry Carol, it was written in 1927 and it's got all that kind of rich harmonic lushness. Peter Warlock claims to have written it to raise money for Christmas drinking. (laughs) This was in a particularly bohemian stage of his life. Wonderful. Anyway, Coventry Carol. Mike, what are your first memories of the Coventry Carol? Again, this is all memories of singing in church choir as as a kid. Mm. The thing I love about it is that it's so simple on the face of it. The the notes and the chords are all very simple, but they go in unexpected places. Mm. It feels so old, and yet at the same time it feels so modern because of the unexpected places it goes. It's weird. Somehow contemporary, but also ancient. It, It does feel ancient. With a lot of this Christmas music, because a bunch of it was 
basically hijacked from the pagan traditions before the like UK Christian Christmas tradition came into force. Mm. You feel that spice in there, to use the gingerbread analogy again. <laughs> you know, because if you go to the, like, the Victorian Christmas carols and stuff, you know, they're all fun and big and bold and brash and stuff, mm. but they don't have that sense of mysterious ancient history. You don't get the impression that they're, they're in a book that was covered in runes. No, precisely. And it's strange to me that this one, which is so Christmassy, the, the part of the story it really tells is when King Herod is killing lots of babies. It's basically infanticized, written beautifully for four-part harmony or three-part harmony, depending on which version you see. <laughs> which brings me actually to my third and final, which is the Omanium Mysterium by Poulenc. Mm. It's a great piece of music and fully worthy of its place in the canon. The reason I bring it up here, there is this one chord near the end. And there's uh, three repetitions of yachetem and yachetem, and it kind of swells into this beautiful chord, and yachetem, and it's an even richer, more beautiful chord, and then yache. And there's this minor second suspension. Mm. It is, for me, the most powerful chord in choral music. Oh, wow. I've got to have another listen to it. I've got to remind myself. It's only three minutes long. Now, I just had to listen to that again, and... I had two specific responses to it. Mm. The one is this really weird thing of a piece which I'm really familiar with mm. that I must have sung a dozen times at least, but I've probably not heard in 20 years. And it's that weird situation that every note that comes through feels like you know exactly what's coming, mm. but you kind of only know exactly what's coming after it's happened. It's a really weird sensation. Right. I could almost sing along, and yet at the same time I couldn't. Interesting. It was so familiar. And yet, at the same time, mm -hmm. I was genuinely surprised by that chord. I'd forgotten <laughs> it was there. While Mike was having a re-listen, I just quickly looked up the score, and it's just an E-flat minor with a 7 and a suspended 2. It's only four voices. It's not a crazy chord. Yeah. The voicing is quite nice because you've got more than an octave beneath the soprano doing that F right up at the top. So everything's kind of hunkered together and then the soprano is way up the top. But mm. I think it's the context more than anything else that just makes that chord slap you round the face. Yeah. And the fact that Boulogne clearly knew this was the highest this piece could go. There's two and a half bars after it. Yeah. And it's a two, five, one in the home key. Really, really simple. But I think it's partly because there's such restraint in the rest of it. It's so generally euphonic. Mm. There's not that much really kind of close clash going on there with the dissonance. So then when he hits you with it, it really makes an impact. And also the fact that this Yacentem text we've had two times before and is a very conscious, never really peaking at that moment. Yeah. It's the end of the text and it always finishes very perfunctorily in the other two statements. It's just sort of right. Yacentem, impressive. <laughs> and the other really nice thing I wanted to call some attention to the piece is in three mm. and this one chord takes place in the only 4-4 four, four bar in the entire piece oh wow it's like it's too big for the bar there we go there we it go it breaks out <laughs> I love that Which brings us, dear listeners, to the close of this, our final episode of 2020. Thank you all so much for listening with us. Thank you for lending us your ears. And if you would like to lend your ears even more, you want to be more overdrawn at the bank of ears, <laughs> then head over to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash Break. And check out the latest extras we've, we've uploaded. We've got orphaned facts. We have <laughs> irony-free joy. 
we have the mm -hmm. Billboard Hot 100 questions. Oh, that was a good quiz. <laughs> and also, don't forget that this is the giving season. Mm. So for that special friend or possibly enemy in your life, please do consider <laughs> projectstudioteabreak.com forward slash merch. In the meantime, you can always hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash pstbbooks and on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash pstbtweets. And if you would like to get hold of us on email, we're on teabreak at projectstudioteabreak.com. So yes, our sponsor this month, Mike, who do we have? Well... I mean, lots of people have been reevaluating their um, sedentary lifestyle. Mm. Now that uh, lockdown has confined us to our homes, more people are working in their own home office, not really moving throughout the day. So true. And of course, there has been a resurgence of interest in the idea of standing desks. Ah. You know, you, you're more mobile when you're standing up, you're more alert. But of course, we're faced with the problem in studios that mm. speaker stands are all at the wrong height. This is very true. So Vertical Technologies have come out with their special new product specifically for these people, the standing stands, <laughs> especially for standing desks. The extra height that will keep you in the sweet spot even as you are protecting your health. So with that, it only remains for me to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Ta-ra, pets! God bless us, everyone! <laughs> Ta-ra! <laughs>